Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word, and we can take your word and put it to music, and it becomes really the song of our hearts. And we each thank you, Lord, for the many, many times that we've cried out to you, and you have answered, you have heard us and answered from your holy hill. You are the God who inhabits eternity, but you stoop down to dwell with those who call upon you and are humbled before you. So here we are, Lord. We're, we're not much, but we're yours. And we're here before you. And we ask you to open our hearts, open our ears, help us to receive what uh, the Spirit of God wants to give to us today. Show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. That will be plenty for us. We ask this in his name. Three years ago, the United States Social Security Administration announced that Jacob's 14-year run as the most popular baby name had come to an end. Aw, right? Last year, the name Jacob was still up there in 12th place among baby names for boys, so it's still quite popular. In the Bible, the name Jacob is popular as well, as we've been seeing. Uh, God is referred to as the God of Jacob, or something very close to that, 25 times in the Bible, and countless times the nation of Israel is referred to with titles such as the House of Jacob, or simply Jacob. Why this elevation of Jacob in both Bible days and our day? I think Jacob is elevated because it helps us to see a very important truth. Namely, that God is the architect of the blessed life. God is the architect of the blessed life. Think about it. God takes a man, Jacob, with a messy life and a messy family, as we looked at last time. A man who is sneaky, deceiving, stumbling, untrusting, and untrustworthy. And God builds out of him a people through whom all the nations on earth will be blessed. As the stars shine the brightest in the, in the darkest skies, so does the glory of God show the strongest in the life of a person whose faith in life is nothing much to write home about. Personally, I'm happy that we have the stories about Jacob because I feel like I'm a lot like him. I'm happy the Bible doesn't just feature the Noahs and the Pauls and the Marys, people who are sinful, to be sure, But they are still wonderful examples of faithfulness and steadfastness. But as great as they are, they can be difficult to identify with at times. And Jacob is not like that. I'm happy to know that God's hand can be seen working so powerfully in the life of a man like Jacob. Someone like me, and maybe like you. That gives me a lot of hope. Can you believe it? Today, we reach the halfway point in our sermon series on lessons from Jacob's journey with God. Both the blessing and the limp that we all receive when we walk with God. And uh, we're going to talk about the architect of his life and ours in a message entitled, The Divine Architect of the Disciple's Life. The Divine Architect of the Disciple's Life. Our text today is rather long. It's Genesis chapter 30 into 31. 
Uh, Jacob has been living in Haran for 14 years, where he had fled from his older brother Esau, you remember, who wants to kill him for cheating him out of his blessing. In Haran, Jacob met the love of his life, Rachel. He ended up having to work for her father Laban, his uncle, for 14 long years to secure Rachel's hand in marriage. Today, we see Jacob finally handing in his resignation to Laban. It's a great day. The 14 years of work are over. And we're about to see how the divine architect's design for the project called Your Life is strange, but full of blessing. The divine architect's design for your life can be strange at times, but it's full of blessing. In Genesis chapter 30, Jacob says to Laban in verse 25, send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But we know by now, Laban is not the kind of guy who just sends someone away. (laughs) It's not going to be that easy. Laban is intent on keeping Jacob. After all, the situation with Jacob had been a pretty sweet deal for Laban. He had married off both his daughters to Jacob and gotten 14 years of cheap labor out of him. So Laban's response in verses 27 and 28 is not too surprising. Verse 27, Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages, and I will pay them. What's happening here? Is Laban suddenly becoming kind at this point, even generous? Well, we know that can't be the case. Not at all. Laban knows something that we find out in the next two verses. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? You see, Jacob is getting older. He has lost 14 precious years because of his slimy uncle Laban. He has to do something or else he'll wind up working for Laban for the rest of his life and he will die destitute. Laban has been blessed because of Jacob, but Jacob himself has not shared very much in the blessing. He's had numerous offspring but has very limited means to feed them. Jacob's been working hand to mouth. In other words, he doesn't have anything of his own but the clothes on his back, his walking stick, his wives, and his children. His options are limited. Is he going to go back to his family in Beersheba? Well, for all he knows, Esau is still waiting to kill him. For now, he just needs a flock of his own so that he can have some milk from the goats, wool from the sheep, and meat from both. At least then, he would have a reasonable means of existence. So watch what happens next in verses 31 through 34. What shall I give you, Laban asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today 
and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will... Now, this is getting to be a little challenging here. And my honesty, he says, I love this verse, and my honesty will testify for me in the future. Maybe not now, maybe not in the past, but in the future. (laughs) My honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. Did you follow all that? What's going on here? It turns out that Jacob has something up his sleeve. He agrees to keep shepherding Laban's flock for a few more years. Previously, the wages that Jacob had received for working for Laban were his wives and room and board. He wants Laban to give him a different kind of wage from now on. If you were a shepherd in ancient times, you could expect to be paid in sheep, goats, or whatever else you were shepherding. So Jacob proposes that he be allowed to keep any animal in the flock that had irregular color and all that would be born with irregular color from now on. Those would be his wages. Now, sheep tend to be white, so the sheep that were not white, either multicolored or dark, would belong to Jacob from now on. Goats tend to be dark, so any spotted or speckled or striped goat would be Jacob's from now on. Jacob proposes that he would go through the flock removing any animal that is already oddly colored in any way, considering them his past wages due, and making them the start of Jacob's new flock. In other words, from now on, you have to picture this, all the normal sheep and goats would belong to Laban, and all the abnormal ones would belong to Jacob. That's an odd deal. It's not at all in Jacob's favor. And yet that is what he proposes. After hearing this proposal, how can you not want to slap Jacob upside the head and say, Jacob, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You're never going to breed a large, good flock that way. Laban is startled too. He can't believe his ears. And he certainly doesn't hesitate to reply, good, agreed. Let it be as you have said. Sure, it's good for you, Laban. Laban is no dummy. He knows a deal that's too good to be true when he hears it, and he jumps on it. Now, what follows in verses 35 through 43 is a bit long for us to read the whole section. So let me summarize most of it, and we'll look at a little bit of it. Laban goes out into his flock and wanders around, removing all the oddly colored animals himself. He doesn't trust Jacob to do that. (laughs) There aren't that many. Most are of normal color, of course. Then, just to be safe, because he doesn't trust Jacob's future honesty either, (laughs) he puts those oddly colored animals into a flock under the care of his own sons. Then, to be even safer, he sets a distance of three days between his own flock and Jacob's new flock of misfit goats and sheep, so there would be no wandering or theft of animals between the two flocks. Okay? 
So now you've got Laban's sons shepherding Jacob's new irregular color flock at a safe distance away to prevent any hanky-panky. That's that's a technical shepherding term, by the way. Uh, While Jacob continues to shepherd Laban's flock of normal color sheep and goats. From now on, be sure we're straight on this. Any sheep or goat born in Laban's flock with irregular coloring will go to Jacob as his wages. And Laban will keep all the ones with normal coloring. Okay? So how is this supposed to help Jacob build his own flock? I mean, he gets the irregulars, which by definition are relatively few and far between. How are you going to get multicolor offspring from same color animals? But that is Jacob's proposal. This is a strange approach for Jacob. Laban thinks Jacob must be crazy. But Jacob, you know Jacob by now. Jacob is crazy like a fox. He has some hanky-panky up his shepherd's sleeve. Things get even stranger in verses 37 through 39. So let's read that part. Verse 37. Jacob, however took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white strips on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Say, what? (laughs) I don't get it. Jacob takes some branches from three different kinds of trees, peels off their bark, leaving streaks on the branches. You can picture that. So he's, in other words, creating sticks that look like what he wants the sheep and goats to look like when they are born. That's his plan. How many of you think that plan is going to (laughs) work? I see that. Uh, so he then, he then places the sticks in the watering trough, and Laban's flock of normal color sheep and goats would come there to drink and to mate in season. Uh, you know, this is another one of those passages that make you say, what? I mean, is this really in the Bible? Why? And do we have to preach on it? It's like that Mandrake passage from last week. Well, yes, John, yes, we do have to preach on this. It's the word of God. So what's going on here? Jacob is apparently acting in accord with an ancient, commonly held belief that what an animal or a person sees during conception will influence the characteristics of the offspring that are born. How many of you had that work for you? (laughs) What were you looking at? (laughs) Yeah. Lo and behold, much to our surprise, Jacob is able to produce oddly colored sheep and goats at will. And you know, each one born like that goes over to Jacob's new flock. But that's not all. We discover in our passage that Jacob only did this when the stronger animals were mating. So therefore, only strong animals bore oddly colored offspring. You picture this, after six years go by, Jacob has a large flock of oddly colored but surprisingly strong animals, while Laban is left with a flock of normal-looking but surprisingly weak animals. 
Laban never caught on to what Jacob was doing. He just couldn't figure it out. He just knew there was an unusually high number of oddly colored sheep and goats that were being born in his flock. What's going on? And then being transferred over to Jacob's new flock as per their agreement. So we get to verse 43, and it says, by way of summary of all of this, in this way the man, Jacob, grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. At the beginning of this arrangement with Laban, Jacob has virtually nothing. But now, the Lord has blessed him with a large flock of sheep and goats, and he's able to trade with the locals and acquire great wealth. What do we do with a story like this? Well, what I did was to scratch my head and pray. So here's what I think. First, you need to know that the success of your life comes from the divine architect, not your own cleverness. The success of your life comes from the divine architect of your life, not from your own cleverness. Jacob uses means, let's be honest, that are laughable, misguided, superstitious, folklore, magical. But he receives God's blessing. As verse 43 makes clear, he experiences great success and prosperity. How can this be? I believe that Jacob wants to trust God. But he also wants to have some security, just in case. And isn't he just like us? From where Jacob was standing, a long time had gone by, and it didn't look as if God's blessing would come through for him. So he needed to help it along. He designed an insurance policy. His little scheme with the sticks, a fallback fallback plan. But as we read on, this is fascinating, we discover that God was the sole reason for Jacob's success. And here's what I mean. In chapter 31, Jacob has a conversation with his wives where he gives them the backstory on his little breeding scheme. In verses 10 through 13, this is what he tells his wives. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flocks were streaked, speckled, and spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. He said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Did you catch that? This is fascinating. The dream allowed Jacob to realize that God was directing Jacob's little scheme and Jacob's success. God was behind it. And another thing that you notice when Jacob is recounting this dream to his wives, did you notice what he left out? He doesn't say a word about that clever little thing he did with the sticks. Not a word. I think he's beginning to get it. I think Jacob has come to know at some level that his blessing with the flock was due not to some plan of his own, but to God alone. 
our clever plans to make things happen. (laughs) It's like children playing house with their little sticks while the parents actually provide all that the family really needs. When Jacob decided to do his little trick with the sticks, he was doing what we all do when faced with similar difficult or impossible circumstances. I mean, we have to do something. We have to take matters into our own hands. He's trying to be clever. He was trying to help God get it done. It seemed to him that God needed some help. His faith was getting worn and weary all by itself. So he came up with a clever idea to shore it up. But I want you to notice what God did not do when Jacob started putting the sticks in the watering troughs. God did not say, okay, that's it, Jacob. I can't take any more. <laughs> you want to cling to your little superstition like your wives clung to the mandrakes? Well, forget it. I've had enough. I'm done. I'm out of here. No. <laughs> no, God, in his mercy, sticks and stays and keeps his promises and does his gracious work anyway. And he blesses Jacob In the process. You see, he's raising a man. A man of God. (laughs) He's transforming this man into a man of God. So as we limp along at times following Jesus, God is always at work all around us. At home, on the job, at school, as we interact with other people in our closest relationships, when we do ministry, And he's always at work, regardless of our being clever with our little sticks. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Your life will not be blessed because you were able to figure out some clever things to help it happen. No. (laughs) It's all about God being God. The sovereign Lord over everything and everyone. And yes, sometimes his ways seem strange to us, but they are always and ultimately full of blessing for those who walk with him. A life that desires God's blessing, yet tries to help God get it done, I think it can be compared to take your child to work day. Here's what I mean. A little boy wakes up early. He's excited to go with his daddy to work. They commute into his job together. They get to the office, and uh, Dad introduces his son to everyone. They all comment on how excited he must be to be working with Daddy today, right? And he is. Then the workday begins, and Dad goes about his day as usual, being sure to include his son in as much as possible. He lets him stuff some envelopes and lick some stamps. If he's really good, he lets him press some buttons on the office machines and print some copies and make some some copies of things. But for most of the time as dad is working, the son pretty much sits at the end of his desk and colors. And then he comes home with all the little crayon pictures he drew. And his mom asks, what did you do today, sweetheart? And he says, I helped daddy at work today. Now, at the risk of sounding sappy, At the end of every day, the most any of us can say about our lives is, I helped my father at work today. But don't ever be confused. God is doing the work. God is doing all the heavy lifting. 
Sometimes our little helps are good and noble and pleasing to God in the best sort of way. He is honored when we do what he commands us to do. But sometimes our helps are on a level similar to Jacob waving sticks around. You know, we're doing our clever little things. Sometimes we show Christ's love to others in beautiful, meaningful ways. But other times we do things that are not so helpful to the cause of Christ. Sometimes we act in accord with God's word, while other times our theological underpinnings are weak or ignorant. The point is that we don't have to go around worrying that God needs us to get everything right in order for him to bless us. Very important. Because that's not how it works. God's not waiting for us to get everything right, because that's not happening. How wonderful is that? I mean, how wonderful is it that we have a God who uses people who play with sticks? Anybody happy about that? I'm really happy about that. I'm so glad. (laughs) The final thing to see from this story is that the divine architect invites you to align your life with his design. He invites you to come and align your life with his design. It becomes clear in chapter 31 that God is pulling the plug on Jacob's time with Laban. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back your native land. Let's refresh our memories. What was Jacob's vow to God back at Bethel? Remember, 20 years now have gone by. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So Jacob said in his side of the vow, if this, if that, if the other, he's always hedging his bets, just like us. But now it was very clear to Jacob that God had fulfilled his side of things. God was with him. God had kept him safe. God had provided for him. God was now calling him to return to his father's household. Most importantly, God was inviting Jacob to live with the Lord as his God. That's the bottom line. In essence, God is saying to Jacob, now, Jacob, it's your time to fulfill your vow to me. See my faithfulness and trust me. Pack up and return to your homeland, to your people. But how would Jacob's wives respond? What would Leah and Rachel think about this? Would they be willing to leave their homeland, their father, and follow Jacob to a strange new land, trusting in a God whose name, let's be honest, frankly, has not appeared on Jacob's lips very often since he made that vow at Bethel 20 years ago. Well, here's their answer, 
And here's Jacob's uh, resulting action. Verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and to our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Paddan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. For Rachel and Leah, the decision seems not to be very difficult. Their father didn't seem to give a hoot about them anymore, and here they were. They're standing with the man whom God obviously had chosen to bless. Do you see what they're doing? They have taken the first step of acknowledging what God was doing and choosing to be part of that. They were responding to God now inviting them to align their lives with Him, with His plans and His purposes in the world. And this is a huge takeaway for us from this story that the disciples' blessed life is available to any and all, any Rachel, any Leah, any Jacob, who align themselves with the Lord and his promises. So what have you done with God's invitation? He's inviting you to align your life with his design. Will you do that? And just what is his design for your life? His design for your life has a very unique, unmistakable shape. It is shaped like a cross over an open grave. It is shaped like a cross on which Jesus died for you to take your sin and its curse upon himself and away from you. It is shaped like a cross which you pick up every day and you follow him, saying no to yourself and yes to him. And it's also shaped like a grave that has been opened and emptied. A tomb out of which Jesus arose alive from the dead, receiving eternal life and giving eternal life to all who trust in him. It's shaped like a grave. It opens wide to swallow up death and to pour out life abundant and everlasting instead. So that is the shape of your life. Disciple of Jesus Christ, That is the shape of your life, a used cross and an open grave. So I invite you to find in that God-shaped design your daily dying to sin and self and your daily rising to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Death and resurrection, that's your lifestyle. Death and resurrection, that shapes your life each and every day on this earth. That's the architect's design, death and resurrection every day. God, the great architect, is inviting you, just as he did Jacob, just as he did Rachel and Leah. He's inviting you to align your life with his sometimes strange, but always beautiful and full of blessing design. He's inviting you to fit the little project that you call your life into the larger-than-life shape of the bloody cross 
and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. For there you will find freedom. There you will find true freedom, death to the sin that wants to control and devour you, and life in the Lord who wants to fill you and empower you. Jesus said, if the Son of God sets you free, if the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. So God blessed Jacob so that the blessing of Christ might come to the whole earth, reaching even you and even me. So I want you to think as we close today, how are you blessed? We go along in our lives and we don't think about this very often. How are you blessed? Jacob was blessed with flocks and servants and camels, but Jesus tells us as his followers, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. So don't look at Jacob's great wealth and say, that's what I want. (laughs) Why doesn't God bless me like that with a lot of stuff? Why would you want that? Why would you want that? Things that break, things that deteriorate, things that die, things that cannot satisfy. Why would you settle for the American dream when you can have God's dream? You can have the blessing of Christ, sin forgiven, eternal life, a heavenly home, the love of God, a relationship with God, a place in the family of God, God with you, Emmanuel. You are a recipient of the kingdom, the very kingdom of God. Disciple of Jesus, you are greatly blessed. And nothing in this universe can ever do better than that and can never take that away from you. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Praise God. As is our custom, let's take a little time. I don't want to just rush off to the next thing, but let's just sit and be still and know that he is God. I just invite you to pray. Um, And in particular, um, I want to encourage you to consider carefully, carefully and in detail, as much as you can, the blessings of God in your life. And give him thanks for that. And I'll ask the prayer team to come on down to the front if you would like